what are the rules for? Now, I believe that if we understand as believers in Christ what the rules are for, it changes everything. Because when we understand that the rules are from a loving Father for our benefit, well, then we're more likely to follow the rules and to implement the rules and to receive their benefit. So today, as we close out this sermon series, I want to tell you a story about my past. And for some of you, this is a story you've heard before, but I think it's a, a powerful story that works perfectly with our conversation today. So I need to time travel you back to about 10 years ago. I was serving in a church, and my role at that church was to oversee the confirmation ministry. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, confirmation is very simple. It's about a three-year cycle of teaching people the basics of the faith and then leading them to an opportunity where they can stand in front of their fellow believers and take ownership of that faith by saying, this is what I believe and this is what I hold on to and this is what is going to guide me into the future. Now, of course, this could happen for anyone of any age, but in our modern Lutheran context, typically this happens with middle schoolers. And so that was my role. Every Wednesday, I would stand up in front of a group of 100 to 150 middle schoolers and I would teach them the basics of the faith. Well, one weekend, I had taken a weekend off and I was traveling with my brand new bride, Ashley, and we were up in Minnesota and I got a phone call from one of our confirmation leaders and one of our confirmation moms. And I saw it, but since I was busy and I was trying to vacation, I just let it go to voicemail, put my phone back in my pocket and went on with my day. Well, Ashley had made her way into a store that I didn't care to go into. And so I got a little bit bored and I pulled out my phone and I listened to the voicemail. And what I heard could only be described as a really tasteless joke. At least that's what I thought I was hearing. You see, the mother on the other end of the line let me know that her 12-year-old daughter was pregnant. And I couldn't believe it. Right on every level, I just couldn't believe that this could possibly be true. But as I listened to the voicemail, again and again and listen to the full story, I realized this is really happening. This was a real story that was impacting a really young girl and a family, and it was going to really change the course of her life in every area, right? Because when the word got out, it would affect school. In fact, when the word got out, it would even affect how she navigated church. And when the word got out, as you can imagine, I started getting calls, I started getting emails, I started getting text messages, because everyone had an idea of what we should do as a church and what we should do as a ministry when it came to this girl and the choice that she make and, and the results of that choice. And the responses were all over the map. Some people thought, we need to kick her out of confirmation and church because we can't tolerate this type of behavior and, and it will send a clear message. Some people said, we need to kick the mom out of church because in the end, she should be able to watch over a 12-year-old daughter and make sure she doesn't fall into this trap, right? So it's on her. The girl can stay, but the mom has to go. Some people was concerned that, that if she came back to confirmation, that it would start this, this pandemic of pregnancies, like every middle school girl would get pregnant in our confirmation. There was all sorts of responses. Some people thought, you know, this is the perfect time to show love to her. Maybe start a ministry for young moms, right? There were all sorts of responses, but I gave one response to every text message, to every email, and to every phone call. 
I said, this is a very delicate situation. It's very complicated. It's going to take me some time to pray about it, to think about it, to seek wise guidance, to dig into scripture. And then when I know what we're going to do, I'll let you know. Well, the time came and I was in a room filled with my volunteers, which I desperately needed to do the ministry with these 150 middle schoolers. And every one of them had an opinion. And depending on what I was about to say, their participation in that ministry would probably change. Right? If I didn't go in the direction they wanted me to go, they were maybe going to walk away. Likely walk away from the ministry, maybe walk away from the church completely. Right? If I didn't align with what they thought we should do. And so this is what I did in a time where I had no idea what to do. I simply opened my Bible and read because I've learned in my years of leadership that the best thing to do when you don't know what to do, in fact, the best thing to do in every circumstance in life is to simply point to Jesus. And so I opened my Bible and I read to them from the Gospel of John, the passage that we're going to study today. And this is how it began. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, if you were here last week, you know that last time we spoke, Jesus was at the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was a normal practice of a Jewish person. They would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, just like we as Christians would go to church on Sunday. But this time, we see that he's actually at some place that's a little bit more significant. He's at the temple, which the closest comparison that I could think of, this would be like a Roman Catholic going to the Vatican, right? A place of grandeur and history, a special place to connect with God. That's what the temple was, but the temple actually was so much more in this time. See, even though it was all of those things, it also was the only place in this moment in time where people could forgive or get the forgiveness that God offered through the sacrificial system. This is the only place that you could sacrifice the animals. And this is why this moment is so intriguing, because Jesus is there. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh, God literally templing among us, living among us. He comes to walk with us, teach us, heal us, hug us, love us, right? This is Jesus. He, he templed among us. We didn't have to go to the temple anymore. The temple came to us right to our hometowns, right? Right to integrate and have conversations with us. Now, we also know that Jesus came to do so much more. He came to pay the ultimate sacrifice on the cross for our sins, which once again, what was the temple doing? Well, the primary purpose of the temple that made it so unique is this is where the sacrificial system happened, where they'd sacrifice the animals and the blood would run and the sins were forgiven. But once again, Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice that made all the other sacrifices completely obsolete from then on forth. He came to the people, the people didn't have to go to him. So here he is in this very temple where every sound, every smell, everything in the temple was meant to point to Jesus. And so he sat down to teach. And when he sat down to teach, there was a large group of people that came to him. But they didn't come to him because of any of the previous reasons that I told you. They came to him simply because he was a magnetic teacher. He told amazing stories. He did miracles that no one could explain. In the end, 
they viewed Jesus as good. And for some people, this was a problem. This is what John writes. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them. So in come the Pharisees. Now, if you were here last week, you know about the Pharisees. In this moment in time, they were considered upright by the people, right? They were followers of the law and they were good teachers. The problem they had was they had one fatal flaw which would train wreck their lives. And their fatal flaw was in how they saw the law. You see, they saw the law as a tool for comparison, but not us to God, which would let us know that we fall short. It was a tool of comparison from us to other people. In other words, if I saw somebody and they were bad, then I would be good. But if they were good, if they were better than me, then I was bad. Now, when we live in this space, just like the Pharisees lived in this space, which is an easy trap to fall into, by the way, we become very destructive for ourselves and for others. Because what do we do? If everything is about comparison from one person to the other, well, then we're spending our time trying to make sure that they don't add up like we add up. Right? We've got to find something in their lives and point at a sin in their lives because if they look bad, then, then I look good. And for the Pharisees, the person they were trying to compare themselves with was Jesus. And right now, he was good, which meant they didn't quite add up. And so this is what they did. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, if you've been around church for a while, you have probably heard the story before. But what I want you to do is just kind of hit pause on, on your mind, fast forwarding to the end of the story. Because in this section, we're going to see a lot of layers. A lot of layers that we don't really see as modern day people. But if we were historians, we would ask ourselves a lot of questions to get clarity on this moment. We'd ask questions like, why is the woman there? Right, why is she there? We know in other sections of scripture that the Pharisees would bring up hypotheticals or, or real stories and real questions to Jesus, but it never required the person to be there. Right, the woman was not required to get yanked out of prison to be on display for this conversation. They could have said, we know of a lady, she was caught in adultery, what should we do? So why was she there? Another question that you'd be asking yourself if you lived in that time or if you were a historian is, Where's the man? Because everyone knew that in their rules, the person who committed adultery and the person they committed adultery with, they were both equally as guilty. So why didn't they drag the man out of prison? Why didn't they bring him with? In fact, because they were in the temple, it'd be advantageous to bring the man because men could go further into the temple than women could at that point in time. Which means if Jesus was teaching in an inner court, and they brought the woman, they actually couldn't even get to Jesus. So where is the man? Another question you need to ask is, why are they even asking this question? Because every good Jewish boy and girl knew, everyone who is of marrying age for sure knew that the consequences in the law for cheating on your spouse was death by stoning. Right? It wasn't in question, it wasn't debated. Everyone knew what was supposed to happen. 
So why are they even asking this question? Why is the woman there? Where's the man? What's the point of this question? Now, to one of those, I think I have a solution. I have a pretty good feel of what's going on. I believe the woman was being used as a tool for emotional manipulation. Because imagine this picture, if this was you, or if you were watching this moment. The woman gets drug out there, and she's on display, and she is probably falling apart, because her life is on the line, right? So she's embarrassed, she's upset, her future is ended, she's train wrecked her life, and she's probably begging for mercy as the tears run down, I don't wanna die. If I could go back, I would do it all differently. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. They're trying to get Jesus to get emotionally invested in this woman. Because when our emotions get involved, we all know this, we make decisions that we don't normally make, right? If the emotions take us this direction, well, the logic kind of gets stuck over here and we forget about that. And if Jesus gets emotionally invested and says, we need to let this woman go, she's obviously very sorry, well, then he breaks what? He breaks the law. And if he breaks the law, guess what? He's not a good person anymore and the Pharisees have won. Now there's actually one more complication in the story that we often don't think about. The complication was that the Romans were in charge. They had pretty much subjugated the whole known world. And no one could inflict capital punishment unless the Romans said, okay. This is why later on the story in Christ's life, when they wanted to kill Jesus, what did they do? They didn't stone him, they took him to the Romans. This is why Christ died on a Roman cross because they were the only ones who had the right to kill someone legally because of their power and their influence in this time. So here's Jesus. If he says no, offer mercy, he goes against the law. If he says yes, we should kill her, he goes against the Romans, and the result of going against the Roman government was death. So what were they trying to do? What were the Pharisees trying to accomplish? Well, John leaves no room for doubt. He says they said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, the Pharisees were trying to put him in a box that he could not get out of. They couldn't out-teach him. They couldn't out-miracle him. They couldn't out-love him. But they thought, maybe, 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 maybe we can outsmart him. So this is what Jesus does. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, when Jesus did this, the Pharisees knew exactly what was happening because they were familiar with the court of law. And before a judge would make his judgment, he would sit down and he would write down all of his thoughts until he came up with a concise, wise statement of judgment to read to everybody. And so when they see Jesus writing down, they're wondering, what will be the wise, concise statement of judgment? And maybe you're wondering that. Now, if you've been with us for all five parts of the series, you actually have a pretty good idea of where Jesus is probably going to go. Because you've already learned that the law was meant for comparison, but not to compare us to one another, but to compare us to God, which of course lets us know that we fall short, we are not perfect, and we need Jesus, or in their case, they need the sacrificial system, which ultimately was going to lead them to Jesus. We know that once we've gotten there, and we're part of the family of faith, God gives us the law back for our gift, 
as a gift to us to keep us free, to redirect us when we go off course, to teach us to be loving to those around us, loving to our families and our coworkers, right? It is a gift to us. And so in this in mind, what will Jesus do? Well, this is what he does. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this is interesting because it's not a statement of judgment, is it? It's just a statement of fact so far. And what does he say? Everyone has sinned. Everyone who's hearing my voice, even in our modern day and back then, right? If you can hear this, you have sinned. There's something you have done that has caused destruction around you. You've destroyed your relationship with God. You've destroyed your relationship with your family, your spouse, your coworker, your friend. We sin and it creates a destructive wake in our path. So Jesus says very simply, okay, if you have not sinned, go ahead and pick up a stone and we will enact judgment. And then he does this. Once again, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Now before he hasn't made a statement of judgment, he goes back to working it out on the ground. But what has changed in this moment? What has changed in this moment is now he has just expanded who is getting judged, hasn't he? Because now it's expanded to everyone who in that moment when he said, have you ever sinned before? And they all had that one sin pop into their mind, that one addiction that popped into their mind, that one thing that they couldn't escape, that past that they couldn't escape, the thing that they did that morning, they all had it pop into their mind and now he's about to enact judgment on everyone. So here's their response. When they heard it, they went away. One by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. So as these people were preparing to get judged, what do they do? They get out of there, right? They don't want to hear this judgment. The older people who are the smarter people and had probably more mistakes on their docket, they get out of there first, but everyone follows. And I don't think it was a, a slow, mopey walk away like, he outsmarted us again. I think they were trucking out of there, right? They did not want to hear the judgment that was about to put on them when they thought they were about to have judgment put on him and this woman. And so they all leave. It's just Jesus and this woman. And there's probably this eerie silence. You know, one of those silences where you can hear things in the background that you never noticed before. They're probably hearing the animals that are being sacrificed. They're probably hearing the animals that are just sitting there waiting to be sacrificed. And this lady is hearing these sounds and just waiting to see what's going to happen. Because what does she know about Jesus? Well, he was good. So if anyone could pick up a rock and throw it at her, it was Jesus. So what does he do? Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on, do not sin again. As she's sitting there in the temple, the place where the sacrifices happened, the place where she could hear the noise of the animals waiting to be sacrificed or those animals being sacrificed, the perfect sacrifice offers grace. But it's not a cheap grace. It's not a grace like we often think of, like, okay, do whatever you want in your life, make all these mistakes, and then in the end, 
just show up and, and God will forgive you. It's not cheap grace. It's not just do whatever you want. No, what does he say? I don't condemn you and do not sin anymore. Right? Don't do this again. Don't make this mistake again. Don't walk down this path again. I have a better way for you. And in this moment, this lady learned a lot about the purpose of God's rules. She learned that she fell short. She made a grave mistake. She knew that it did damage to her and her family, likely someone else's family. But she also knew there was a better way, a better way that she could live, a better way that she could love others, a better way that she could communicate to a future generation of how God had, what God has for them in their life. So back to the room. I'm standing in front of all these volunteers who are about to make a decision about their participation in their church, their ministry, based on what I was about to say. I read the story, I closed my Bible, and I said, so what do you think Jesus would do in this situation? And then I just let silence fill the room. It was almost like I, I bent over and started writing on the ground. And when the silence ended, I said, I think we have a real opportunity here. I think we have a real opportunity to extend grace and truth to this young girl. And I think we have a real opportunity to teach grace and truth to a whole bunch of middle schoolers that will understand it because of the powerful thing that we're all going through in this moment. So my invitation to you as volunteers is to join me in that, to be a part of a ministry that extends grace and truth, not just one or the other, and to change these kids' lives forever. Well, the next week we get back into our regular rhythms and every one of my volunteers, no matter their opinion before that conversation, showed back up who were focused on extending both grace and truth to these kids. The next week, that young lady, now pregnant, future young mom at 12 years old, would come back and the kids would extend grace and truth. Her small group leader would extend grace and truth. As the months went on, she continued to come back with friends. And who were her friends at this point in time? She wasn't in the regular school anymore, she was in a special school with a bunch of girls who were pregnant or had already given birth at a very young age. And now, all of those girls who never would have probably darkened the door of a church because they didn't want to be judged or looked down upon, came to our confirmation program, learned the basics of the faith and had an opportunity to profess that faith in front of fellow believers because we were a ministry that understood the purpose of the law, that we are to extend grace and truth. This is a law that's given to us and to the world. A beautiful gift that we get to give to everyone around us.